0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: This is getting more interesting every time.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius, joined by our, our regular superstar cast, Sarah Cliff, Ezra Klein. It's a, an action-packed week. We already did it's an our episode. second Weeds We already week. did an episode earlier. First one was
1: pretty good. Um, I listened it, to it. It was,
2: it was uh, yeah, well, thank you. Um, if you have not listened to the earlier one, I really recommend going to the very end of it and listening to what Dara says about America and our role with refugees. Uh, historically, it's, I think, a very beautiful, moving
1: Message. Yes, it was. And now we'll talk about the beautiful moving topic of destination-based cash flow taxes. Well, yes. so
0: we're we're going to get back to like what the weeds is about and talk about a really wonky, weird thing that is, is working its way through Congress. We're going to talk about an important white paper about Hitler. And first, though— With the
1: best white paper title I've— ever seen.
0: It's pretty great. I mean, if you think about the pros and cons of Nazism, (laughs) at least it brought us this white paper title. But many cons. Uh, But before (laughs) that
2: the Holocaust, a lot of people suffered. Yeah, every Of all everybody. kinds.
0: <laughs> um, Jews, mostly, though. Um, so, all yeah. sorts of people. Let's talk about the Supreme Court.
1: We have a new Supreme Court nominee. Um, Trump has picked Judge Gorsuch to be the next Supreme Court justice. Um, he comes to us from Colorado, um, 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. He has written an entire book on assisted suicide, which is quite unusual for someone coming to Supreme Court. <laughs> He's where he, against it. <laughs> he is <laughs> surprise reveal. He's against it. Um, His book on assisted suicide, it really suggests he has some quite strong views on uh, abortion and and when life begins. He was very involved in kind of one of the more prominent cases of the past few years, the Hobby Lobby decision. He was one of the Judges who made the decision that was upheld by the Supreme Court that it was a violation of religious liberties. He's been involved in another case um, that did not make it to the Supreme Court that even challenged the accommodation. He doesn't think that the Supreme Court went far enough in accommodating religious liberties in Hobby Lobby. So you have his jurisprudence. And then you also have what's happening in the Senate in terms of the political battle we're about to see about how Democrats take on um, this nominee after seeing Republicans deny a hearing to Merrick Gardland. And I think you're really seeing a huge range of opinions develop among Democrats, ranging from Jeff Merkley in Oregon, who says, even before we knew who was being nominated, that anyone should be a filibuster, that he's not going to support anyone. Some other Democrats, um, I think including Gene Shaheen, who our colleague, Fox's Jeff Stein, talked to, who said that, you know, we shouldn't go the same route the Republicans are going. And I think they are facing down a choice about how they want to handle this that could have pretty – long reaching implications, um, you know, for this session of Congress and really stretching beyond when Democrats might be back in power.
0: I feel like the stakes on this are actually super duper low and that people are just arguing about it because they're arguing about it. Right. So like if Democrats try to filibuster, they will probably fail uh, to, to just get the number that they need because there's just enough vulnerable Democrats out there. Um, If they succeed in filibustering, um, Republicans will change the rules and Gorsuch will be on the bench. If Democrats decline to filibuster in order to preserve the filibuster to use later, which is like one theory they have— Then when they try to filibuster later, Republicans will change the rules and the judge will come in. I think that the smart thing to do is for every Senate Democrat to consult his pollster and his campaign team to look in a very serious way at what he thinks is going to help him or her raise money and win reelection and do that.
2: Gorsuch is is an interesting nominee because what you see here is Donald Trump fulfilling his side of the deal to the Republican Party. Since he got elected, he has been doing some things the Republican Party, for the most part, would not be their top priorities. Maybe they don't oppose him in all cases, but they don't love certainly the way the refugee and immigration ban was carried out. Um, They don't like him running around talking about immigration. They did not really intend for their top priority of the new administration to be negotiating over how many people attended the inaugural but what Donald Trump promised the, the Republican Party was that he would nominate a conservative justice to fill an Antonin Scalia's seat, and he has done that. Gorsuch is a judge who very well could have been the nominee of Marco Rubio, very well could have been the nominee of Ted Cruz, very well could have been the nominee of Jeb Bush. This is sort of what you would expect. He's quite conservative, interesting guy, very, very smart, very well liked. In fact, Neil Kachal, who's... The former Solicitor General for Barack Obama came out and said, Gorsuch is a great guy. He's a brilliant mind. He's a humane person. These are like really –
0: I think the the worst people in the world are the legal academics who come out of the woodwork anytime somebody nominates like a smart – judge for like an enormously consequential position that will make like life and death decisions for millions of people and comes out with the op-ed and be like, stop complaining about the practical consequences of this guy for your life. The important thing is he has good journal articles. Like it's I, I think like of all the points of view on this, like from he's good, he's horrible, you should filibuster. They all make sense. I sympathize those with them all like except for Neil Katyal's like I think that is awful like it it makes my skin crawl like I, I, what the fuck is he talking about it, it it's so crazy
1: i don't think it's that crazy I, I do not have the same reaction that you have to it I, I understand being able to see like at least understand his jurisprudence like understand like why he is making these decisions that he's like i read it as saying like this is not some like off-the-wall zany guy who we, like don't know what to expect i see it as civil like i see it as like Good discourse. Um, I, I get the politics of it may not be perfect, but
2: I'm into it. I have a view on this that I think helps us actually bridge into discussion of what comes next, which is, I assume Katyal is writing from the perspective of among conservative justices a Republican president might have chosen and that he thinks Judge Gorsuch is a good version of that, right? That I think he'd probably be disappointed if Hillary Clinton had chosen Gorsuch, although I can't speak for Katyal. I haven't interviewed him on this. But what I do think is an important backdrop here is the the importance of one winning elections, but of just party politics and, and power in that. So I am seeing a lot of debate about Merrick Garland and Don Johnson, who was a judge nominated by Obama, not for the Supreme Court for, I think it was an appellate court, but whose nomination was filibustered and held up for, I think it was 10 months and she ultimately never got on the bench. She wrote a piece saying that the Senate should refuse to confirm anybody until Garland is put on the bench, that there just should not be a confirmation until Garland goes on. And it's in peace, it makes some arguments, but I think that people have slightly almost forgotten what happened in 2000 and whatever it was, 16, which is that Republicans controlled the Senate and so they actually had the power to just say no and I think folks – are not fully absorbing that that's actually a pretty different scenario now. I think, I think there is – I don't mean that people like literally don't know how politics works, but I think there's a feeling that Obama had power um, and so Democrats should have been able to get Garland on the court. But right now, Democrats just have no power. The only interesting question is should – is it worth it for them to go to war over Gorsuch and his judicial philosophy, right? Because in many ways, there are probably places that he has made pretty unpopular decisions. And see the filibuster blown up over that. Is that a good messaging point? Is, should they be doing – and I think this would be the strongest version of the argument. Should they be doing to Donald Trump what Republicans did to Barack Obama, which is to make really clear that he is governing from the far right – that he is governing alone, that he is making Washington an angry, bitter, polarized place, that people are upset and just creating a kind of sentiment shockwave wherein whatever happens with the Gorsuch confirmation, people just kind of hate the whole experience of it. And as such, like opinion ratings go down and the people who tend to suffer for that are, are, are the party that holds the White House. I think that's the argument for Going to the wall on this. It's not that Gorsuch will actually be stopped from being on the court, because either they're just going to take down the filibuster or they're just going to nominate someone else. So who's like him?
1: I think my answer on this has actually changed in the what, like 12 days of the Trump administration, where 12 days ago I would have said, no, don't go to the wall, pick your battles. But the last few weeks have been pretty interesting and seeing it feels like the liberal side has been shockingly effective and like excited to be fucking angry right now. I have been surprised, like this is one kind of microcosm example from Obamacare, but you had this instance where the Trump administration announces they're not going to advertise for open enrollment anymore. And a lot of people flipping out, a lot of like meltdown, a lot of logistical challenges and actually pulling ads off the air. And within 24 hours, they reversed the decision. They decided like, we're not going to fight this battle. Um, you're seeing like some small victories on the immigration ban. And you're seeing a lot of people who really like want to go to rallies, who like want to like do something. It seems like a moment when Democrats are going to be rewarded for like really going to the wall politically, that um, that there's a lot of desire for that. The long-term consequences I'm like less sure on, but like if I'm thinking about like the next two years, like I'm thinking of an election cycle in 2018, like then I say like, yeah, let's go for it and like harness this moment when it actually seems like there is some efficacy and like there is like a group of people, a very large group of people who want to kind of get riled up by this?
0: I just, I feel like there is no wall here. There's like a problem that we have hit upon in judicial confirmations, which is that increasingly over time, senators have become reluctant to vote yes for judges who they think will be bad, which makes a lot of sense to me, right? (laughs) Because like, I'm not a senator. So you can just ask me, like separate from like, how should people vote? Like, do you think Neil Gorsuch will be a good judge? The answer is no. Right. Like I didn't think it's right. And like that's common sense. You just run around, you ask people you're like, no, like I just disagree with that guy. So then if I magically became a senator, it would be hard for me to say to angry constituents who are like, yo, this guy's a bad judge. Be like, true, he's a bad judge, but I'm going to confirm him anyway, because in a hypothetical future, different circumstance, I would want a different senator to confirm a judge who I thought. Would, you know what I mean? Like it, it, that's tough. But for a long time, like that was the norm.
2: Yeah, Antonin Scalia was a unanimous vote.
0: Right. And that norm has been eroding. And you saw it very visibly with the Sonia Sotomayor uh, nomination who, you know, it was a a Democratic judge replacing another Democratic judge. There was nothing uh, consequential happened uh, in American constitutional law because she came on the bench. Obama had... A huge Senate majority at, at that point, very high ratings. Um, and she got like shockingly few Republican votes for the pretty good reason that like Republicans didn't want to vote for a Democrat. And I just feel like we're getting to the bottom of that well, where like the filibuster has been eroded rightly for, like, everything except Supreme Court judges. Well, and legislation. Uh, yes, yes. No, no. I just right, wanted to clarify sure, yes, that. Sure, yes, yes. But so, like, if the ping pong here was it was just like everybody hold up your hand if you think Neil Gorsuch will be a good judge and, like, there aren't 60 senators who think that and then it's like, oh, man, he can't be seated. And then Mitch McConnell's like, why don't we change the rules so the party with more votes wins? I'd be like, yeah, that like that's all sensible, right? Like, that's just how it should go. It's the Garland nomination that was interesting. In America, it is not rare for the president and the Senate majority to be in different parties. And so, like, can you fill Supreme Court seats under those circumstances? The answer Mitch McConnell posed was no, you cannot. And Obama tried and completely failed to, like, deal with that in a, in a sensible way. And that just strikes me as, like— the problem zone for America. Uh, Of course, it's just like, we'll see what happens. But I think it doesn't matter. If you're anything like me, you know sometimes you want a snack, and if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're gonna eat junk food, and it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great, and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried food stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try Try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. NatureBox.com weeds.
2: I want to maybe make the case not for political strategy here, but for why there is something fundamentally problematic happening. So you go back to the Merrick Garland situation and what you have there is Barack Obama is facing down a Republican Senate and so he comes to the idea that I'll go forward with a judge that everybody agrees is a compromise judge, right? You know, still on the left side of the spectrum but if that had been – the Obama nominee with a Democratic Senate, Republicans would have been thrilled. Like Merrick Garland would have been the best. But no, no, no. Orrin Hatch
0: for. specifically said when there was a Democratic Senate and Obama was filling judges slots, Orrin Hatch was like, oh, man, this is terrible. He should have nominated Merrick Garland. So there you go.
2: So so there's that. Then Mitch McConnell does not go forward with the argument, we think Merrick Garland is a bad judge. He goes forward with the principle, like the bullshit principle that no judge should be seated in an election year, which functionally, because election years actually happen every two years, they don't just happen when presidents are elected, means that no Supreme Court judge can be seated half of the time, I think, if you just take that principle seriously. So okay, that's where we are, and that principle obviously holds. So then what happens in the election is the Democratic candidate wins more votes, and Democratic Senate candidates win more votes. And because of how geography, political geography works in America, that does not lead to them having put power in either the White House or the Senate. But nevertheless, what happened in the election was more people voted for democratic ideas. And I think it's a pretty reasonable principle for Democrats to adopt that that just taking the election results seriously requires here a compromise candidate. That not working – I think what a lot of people do here is they work backwards from outcomes. This guy will probably be seated, as Matt says. So why really fight it? But I actually think as a principle, it should be said, I think it is meaningful that most people voted for not Donald Trump and most people voted for Democratic Senate candidates and that responsibly, it would be good to be putting forward for the Republican just majority, um, the, the, the Republican empowered majority to be at least making some impulse in that direction, to be nominating their own form of Merrick Garland, right? Somebody still on their side, but who is more or less a compromise nominee, which is not what Gorsuch is. Gorsuch is, you know, if you are trying to replace Antonin Scalia, he is the replacement for Antonin Scalia. He is a, I'm sure, a lovely guy, very, very clearly brilliant guy, but a, a quite far to the right judge. And I think it is a fair message for Democrats to put forward that... The election results matter that they feel is their job to represent the majority of people who voted for them and their candidates, and that they want to insist not that this guy is a bad judge, but that he is not a compromise judge in any sense of the word. And they would be happy to vote for someone who is more of a compromise, but 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 not for but not for this guy. And to get a little bit away, as Matt says, from the idea that you should vote for judges on the sort of abstract basis of qualification, which I just i I sort of agree. People should be qualified. But that is a necessary but not sufficient condition for them to be supported.
1: It's quite possible that Trump might have another seat to fill. And so, like, let's say he did – I guess, like, what's the motivation on the Republican side to go they compromise won't. candidate? They okay. won't. They just this won't. This just like – It's just what is – I actually
2: – it's just like the question of – because the outcome here in all versions of it, as far <laughs> as I can tell, <laughs> is Gorsuch gets on the bench. There's a question of what is the right argument to make? And I actually think – I think this is true across a lot of things right now with Trump. I think Trump is an unpopular president who won fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. And I think that Democrats should actually demand as a price of cooperation that he compromises, that he acts like somebody who has to win over the majority. And I don't think they – I think that one sort of danger for Democrats is they'll fall into like – they'll fall into fall on like Donald, Donald Trump is a fascist and that's why you can't – work with him on anything, which I don't actually think is a really – I don't think he is a fascist and I don't think it's like a reasonable message. But I do think it's a reasonable message to say he won fewer votes. He needs to come to the middle. Like that. that is how this works and they're not going to just give votes for nothing. And so far – I mean there's not been a lot of tests of this yet. But so far, I don't think there's been much of that. He is unlike both Barack Obama and George W. Bush has nominated zero Democrats to his cabinet, right? Obama had Bob Gates. He tried to nominate Judd Gregg. Bush had Mineta. Um, you know, there were – and he had a lot of people who were considered compromised players. There has been no legislative outreach from Donald Trump that has been meaningful. He's been extremely partisan from day one here. And I think that it is a totally reasonable message to just say like this like this guy won fewer votes. If he wants any help in Washington that's not just fall on obstruction, he has got to act like that. He has got to act like there is a majority here that he at least needs to keep in mind.
0: But I would say, you know, in in terms of like the fatalism on this, right, that like – when you're you're sitting in, in Chuck Schumer's chair and part of the issue here is that because of geography and the map and so on and so forth, you have a bunch of Democrats representing uh, Missouri, West Virginia, Indiana, North Dakota, you know, who are up for re-election in 2018. And those are states where Donald Trump is popular and where he did win. Mm-hmm. And so one question Schumer has to ask on, yep. on everything is, which are the issues where I'm trying to hold my caucus together and which are the issues where I'm going to let those guys develop some discipline? from the party leadership, right? Or or in which it's just inevitable that they're going to. And I think that we have seen very clear signals that replacing an iconic conservative Supreme Court justice with a younger conservative Supreme Court justice who is academically well-regarded and publishes books under university presses and gets good Neil Katyal op-eds is just like That's one of the topics where Claire McCaskill and Joe Manchin are going to take a dive um, because they obviously – they have to take a dive on something, right? And that is in some ways a good reason for Schumer to take a relatively extreme message on this because no matter what he says, they're going to take a dive and cooperate with Trump. So it's like if he says something that like really fires up the Democratic base – and that, like, they're really enthusiastic about, and it's like, okay, Democrats are fighting for me, and then, like, actually, these seven Democrats take a dive. In some ways, that like accomplishes what everybody wants out of this. Like, Donald Trump gets the judge he wants. Claire McCaskill gets distance from the leadership. The base gets to see their leader fighting for them. Whereas, like, trying to message it in the most reasonable way, I think is going to end up dissatisfying everyone. And it, and it reminds me of. Garland nomination to me was like Obama going like back into the bag of like bad Barack Obama political tactics that he he largely dumped, but that he employed a lot in 2011. Uh, he employed with the Garland nomination and he employed around the intelligence community disputes about Russia and Hillary's email server, which is where Obama would frequently say, OK, we have intractable political disputes in America. And no higher authority. We can't we can't dissolve parliament and hold a snap election the way you could in Canada. So what I'm gonna decide is that if I can get like reasonable right-of-center newspaper columnists to say that my position is more correct and the Republicans are just being plain old unreasonable. That, like, that's my equivalent of appealing to a higher power. Like, look at this David Brooks column. And he tried it on the debt ceiling. He tried it on Garland. He tried it on, on Comey. And, like, these are universally, like, the low points to me of the Obama administration, where he stakes out a position that his own supporters will not support so that he doesn't even have, like, a fight on his hands. Um and to me, that's just like what Democrats need to do here is like not hold the line, not hold him up, not block him. But just the Democrats who represent blue states need to articulate what their constituents feel about this.
2: I feel very conflicted on a political premise, though, that, that you stated at the beginning about 2018. And and here's why. So 2018 is a very bad Senate map for Democrats. Well, you know what else was a bad Senate map was 2010 for Republicans. True. Uh that was the in-cycle election from 04. George W. Bush had, had a big win in 04. They were looking likely to in in a conceptual way they were defending more seats. It was it was not a good map for them. And the way they won was not being really moderate and taking dives and you know going out in a in a way that assured their constituents that they were the most reasonable folks in the room. They won by firing up the conservative base and also by demoralizing the Democratic right. base. And so when I think about your Joe Manchin's or Claire McCaskill's, and, and look, Joe Manchin is in a s- state that is very, very, very pro-Trump. So he's a he's he's a sort of a different case. Um, in some basic way, there should not be a Democratic senator from West Virginia. Um, but you know what I what I look around and see right now is that you have, as as Sarah noted, a liberal base that is that is oriented towards being activated in a way that I have never seen before. Like this whole idea of like protest is a new brunch. People want to come out. They are forging new social ties. They are forging a new relationship maybe with how they involve and invest in politics. I think a lot of people want to protest the Supreme Court justice. And two, I really think this is true. This is not a liberal stance. Um, The truth is Gorsuch is a very conservative judge. And I'm not sure that it is the wrong ground for Claire McCaskill. To fight on, to be like, I think we should have compromised nominees who are not extremely far to the right on every single issue that you can imagine and are going to, you know, continue to push the court in this direction. I mean, I, I, this is a replacement for Scalia, so the overall balance of court decisions will not change much, but against the hypothetical baseline of the person who won the most votes nominating the judge, it would change quite a lot. And so just the idea that I think Chuck Schumer still has, and I don't know, I've not talked to him about this, but... Democrats used to win elections one way in a less polarized time and it's not clear to me that way is wrong but definitely it seems to me a major problem for Democrats in 2016 was their base was not that excited about their candidate and particularly in midterms where the singular problem Democrats have is their base tends to not be that excited. It isn't obvious to me that the pathway to success even in more – even in redder states is through a strategy that demoralizes base. Now, I really, like, I do not have high confidence about this opinion, but I'm questioning it in a way that I'm questioning this ar- This argument in a way that I think I probably didn't four years ago when, you know, that seemed more like what Democrats did in 06 and what Republicans did in um, uh, 2002, say, that, that sort of had sort of worked.
1: And they're, I mean, they're being handed a candidate, too, who, like, has probably been, like, one of the most outspoken conservative judges on, like, an issue that Democrats really care about, about birth control and, like, reproductive health. Right. And this, like, battle we've had over the past, um, gosh, like, six years now, really uh, around, like, Planned Parenthood's funding and this idea of war on women, that, like, he is someone who has staked out positions far— Far to the to the right of where the Supreme Court went. So um, if you remember, the Supreme Court decision in favor of Hobby Lobby basically had an accommodation for um, religious nonprofits where they would um, send in a form, say, I don't want to provide birth control, and the government would take things over from there and provide birth control to people who wanted it. He was one of the judges when that case um, was challenged again to a circuit saying the accommodation isn't good enough. We don't want to send in this form because that makes us complicit in supplying birth control, he um, the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case again. He was one of the people who really urged them to who thought, like, yes, this does not go far enough. So it seems like in in, in the particular case, of gosh like this is an issue that I think has been quite successful for a group like Planned Parenthood and a group like Liberals, where you do generally see a lot of support for access to birth control, a ton of support, like even among Republicans, for having access to contraceptives and more contraceptives. Um, it's not really like an issue that polarizes as much as um, something like abortion might. So it seems like, like you know, when you were bringing up Claire McCaskill, I was like, oh, I can totally see like a Claire McCaskill right. like going like super hard, you know, at, at that issue, and you know she won against Ted Aiken who was like really like a key figure in a lot of the early war and women stuff that that he he almost seems on this particular issue like a candidate really well suited to the type of um you know campaign you're suggesting.
0: Yeah, I mean I I just want to sort of introduce into the the debate like a, a distinction between what do quote unquote the democrats but what do you mean like the party's leaders and high profile representatives from blue states do and what does like literally the entire Democratic caucus do because it's worth looking back at the legislative track record of Obama's first two years, right? And there's bill after bill after bill from the stimulus to Dodd-Frank to the public lands bill to the S-chip expansion to the FDA regulation of tobacco that like Mitch McConnell opposed and the majority of Senate Republicans opposed. And as a caucus, they engaged in delaying tactics to make it painful to pass, but which several Republican senators voted for, generally almost always the Republicans from Maine uh, who felt themselves very vulnerable, but sometimes Republican members from Ohio, New Hampshire, you know, just the more vulnerable members often took a dive on those kind of bills, which was consistent with the message that like, quote, unquote, the Republicans were fighting Obama and that I I think. Liberal activists, like people who complain on the internet, whatever, will end up doing themselves a disservice if they set the bar for Democrats are opposing Donald Trump at John Tester is opposing Donald Trump. That like the guys way out there on a limb in those super red states are just like they are going to take a dive on some stuff that Trump does when it's not particularly crazy. Yeah, but I, I
2: do think just to to make the argument, and, and I'm, yeah. I'm not sure which side of this I fall on, but one, the Supreme Court, one thing about all those bills is that just they were lower profile. Yeah. And what Mitch McConnell was always good at doing and what was really a strategy was to choose the places where he wanted to have a fight sure. that would really activate his base, right? right? and. I think there's just a real difference between Chuck Schumer's strategy being hold enough Democrats together that there is a filibuster that can only be broken by breaking the filibuster. And, you know, what you're saying, which is like allow a critical mass of Democrats Mm -hmm. to take a dive so that, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, there's a 60, 40 majority to break the filibuster. So you could definitely imagine a world in which 42 Democrats hold a filibuster but John Tester and Joe Manchin and you know name a couple others uh, defect. there's another world where Chuck Schumer is not actually making this a really whipped vote and they are trying to let the they, they, what they want to have happen is most people oppose um, Gorsuch and the filibuster breaks and and I think that's where the the strategic question is here and it's I'm not somebody who, who knows how to answer it but the best argument that gets made to me from sort of like liberal activisty people is, Your base doesn't want to fight for you if they don't feel like you're going to fight for them. Yes, And the thing about going to the wall on the filibuster, particularly given that we all sort of agree at this point the filibuster here is symbolic because it will just die as soon as it's used, is it is a way of dramatizing. We are fighting for you. You know, they are um, Mm -hmm. refusing to afford a compromise nominee. They are taking things in as, you know, on Sarah's point, along with all these other things are doing on birth control, a radical direction that, that you don't like. And look, maybe we can't stop it. But we did everything we could. Mm -hmm. And like that is a message consistent with liberals being excited about Democrats, whereas, well, we tried. But in the end, enough Democrats broke to let this person through is a message consistent with liberals getting very disillusioned about Democrats.
0: Speaking of disillusionment.
2: Ooh. Yes. How could you ever be disillusioned about forward or adjustable taxation?
0: Uh, I I cannot. Um, I think this is a fascinating idea. Um, the Trump administration finally bringing us a super wonky tax <laughs> reform initiative.
2: Well, you you were going to explain this? Uh, I, I am. Or I'm at least going to explain the context around it. So I think it was Sean Spicer was flying back on an airplane yes. and was asked about how— From po-
0: Philadelphia. So it was a very short flight.
2: So yeah, Philadelphia, they're coming back from being at the GOP retreat. And he was asked by somebody about – Paul Ryan appears very open to building the wall and just appropriating the money to build the wall and getting rid of this whole like Mexico has to pay for it thing. But Sean Spicer was asked about that and he said, well, there are a lot of ways to make Mexico pay for the wall. And then he said some complicated things that initially got reported as we could stop a 20 percent import tax on um, imports from Mexico. And so immediately people jumped up and said, wait, that's not Mexico paying for the wall. That's American consumers paying more for avocados and American consumers paying for the wall. And then as the full remarks came out, it appeared that what Spicer was floating as part of maybe a broader tax reform was something called a border adjustable tax.
0: Well, there's a border adjustable tax, but this is more specifically a (laughs) destination-based cash flow tax.
2: Okay. So this is an idea Republicans floated in a tax reform proposal, I think about a year or two years ago now. It's it's pretty recent that it's become uh, a popular idea in Republican circles, and it's not even that popular. Club for Growth is against it. There are a bunch of pretty funny uh, blog posts at the American Enterprise Institute, some of which make good points about how this would like help El Chapo and (laughs) lead to more illegal immigration, which actually it might. Um, But- The way this tax works is right now the way the US taxes corporate income is that you can deduct as a business expense things you buy from abroad as part of your business. When Walmart buys a bunch of shirts from a Chinese manufacturer of shirts, that money gets deducted. That's non-tax. That's deductible. It's non-taxable. By the same token, when Apple sells iPods in Spain, that is money that in theory we tax because we tax corporate income no matter where it happens. What this would do is make taxation exclusively place-based. It would totally erode that structure. And one reason a lot of people don't like that structure is it it is a structure that creates a lot of gaming. That's why, you know, Apple is holding all this taxable income offshore. There's all kinds of things that are not good about it. But what you're doing here is you're saying you are only going to tax domestic income and expenses. So... You can deduct business expenses but only domestically. So if you are Walmart and you buy a bunch of shirts from a Chinese manufacturer, that is not a deductible expense. And if you are Apple and you sell a bunch of iPods to Spain, that money does not get taxed. The only taxation that happens is basically money that is moving through American – the the American side of the ledger. So – there are – there are. by the way, it's not just a right-wing idea. It has been suggested in different ways by the Center for American Progress, by the Century Foundation. And what is tricky about it – and this is where I want to turn over to Matt because I find this very hard. So if you just heard this idea, what you would think it does is it's really bad for businesses that import a lot of goods and it's really good for businesses that export a lot of goods. And so this would just seem to have a distributive effect where like Walmart is screwed and you know other companies are very well served. When you talk to economists they don't believe that is true. And the reason they don't believe that is true is that the this tax will change the strength of the dollar versus other currencies by changing demand for imports versus exports. And so in a kind of textbook mathematic model, a textbook economic model, everything is just going to balance out fine and there's basically going to be no real net change in the number of imports and exports because the dollar is going to go up and down to mediate that demand. The place where people argue is how much you believe in that textbook explanation of how rapidly, smoothly and fully exchange rates adjust to something like this. This is a debate I do not understand. And I'm hoping that does.
1: And can you just walk through, too, as long as I'm going to layer on to Ezra's question, like what the theory is of like why these fluctuations are changing and like how they play out for consumers?
0: So, I mean, I, I think a good way to think about this, this is being presented in Congress as a reform to the corporate income tax, which serves certain political purposes, but I think becomes a confusing way to actually understand what's happening, right? So in in most Western countries, they have what's called a a value-added tax. Um, A a value-added tax is like the retail sales tax that state governments offer, except it really applies to everything. So you normally don't pay sales tax like if you hire a plumber. You you know, there's you you sort of know it if you think about it. And states vary a little bit, but it's like things you go get at the cash register, there tends to be a sales tax added to. But other kinds of services you buy, like if you hire a lawyer, you don't pay sales tax on. So, so a VAT is like a sales tax, but a really universal sales tax. One way that they make a VAT truly universal is that it's administered differently from a sales tax. So instead of being like added on at the cash register, it's done by
2: corporations through their internal balance sheets. Can you you say a word on that? Just like give an illustrative example because I think that's a pretty important
0: point. Right. Well, so so, so the way of of that would work and the reason you can collect it from a law firm, right, is that you need to at the end of the year like present your paperwork to the tax authority and it says, well, we had such and such amount of revenue, right, and then we had these expenses and you can deduct your expenses and – you know, you have your income and then you have to pay a tax on that differential between them. So the value-added tax is collected in a way as opposed to a sales tax. It makes it easier to collect from everybody. Because you're collecting it from companies rather than from individuals, it has a, um enforcement similarity to a corporate income tax, which is how it got into the corporate income tax discussion. And so of that – necessarily you end up wanting to do a border adjustment on. Otherwise, it wouldn't be like a retail sales tax, right? You would be taxing Boeing on airplanes it sold to foreigners, which is not the goal of a domestic consumption tax. So, in a domestic consumption tax, right you deduct all of your domestic expenses uh, or rather you, you you deduct your domestic purchases and you don't deduct your foreign purchases and you're taxed on your domestic sales but not on your foreign sales that's value added tax the value added tax often American businessmen have complained that the value added tax is a subsidy to their foreign competitors that it's some kind of like trade ban. And based on that long-running dispute, there is a very extensive economics literature on whether this amounts to a trade subsidy. And the overwhelming consensus from, like, economics models is that, no, it isn't, right? That So, like, in Canada, right, people buy cars. If you were a Canadian person buying a car in Canada, you are paying value-added tax on that car. The fact that you are paying that tax... It's entirely the same whether that tax was a Prius that was assembled in Japan and imported to Canada or whether it was built in one of the Canadian plants or whether like many cars, it was assembled in the United States but out of parts that some of them are from Mexico and some of them are from Canada, right? The tax that is paid on you, uh, the tax that you pay as a consumer is completely indifferent to
2: where the product is
0: from. So that's the like – economic and and international trade law. So why would that
2: be a subsidy for for a Canadian auto producer? Well, that's the point, is that the the, the argument is that it is not, right? But why does an American businessman think it is? Why are they making that complaint?
0: Well, so the way uh, American businesses see it is that it's like, oh, well, when we export to Canada, our sales are taxed. Whereas when Canadians export to the United States, neither the American government nor the Canadian government is taxing them, right? Which is... True. It's just – the economist's argument is it's not relevant, right? That like all sales in Canada are treated the same. All sales in the United States are treated the same. It just happens to be that Canada taxes Canadian consumers and the United States does not tax American consumers but that there's no discrimination based on foreignness or
2: or not. But hold on. I think there's another part of this if I understand the argument, yeah. that which is that the American businessman says – Hey, look, our car is getting this VAT tax in Canada, and also we are paying corporate income taxes on the money we get on that in America. Right, so, like we're getting screwed compared to our. Well, Canadian well yes, but I mean, yeah.
0: I just I think it is better to just think of this as like unrelated issue. issues. Okay, right? So like American businessmen do not like the worldwide taxation system in which they owe taxes on their sales no matter where they come. And American liberals also don't like the worldwide taxation system because companies massively avoid taxes on it. The worldwide corporate income tax system is something that a lot of people have a lot of complaints with. One appealing thing about shifting to this kind of system from Alan Auerbach's point of view, or really from a sort of principled conservative point of view, is that this way, if you are a company that has a genuine bona fide foreign sale, you don't need to pay taxes on it. But you can't just do accounting work to like pretend that all the profits are in your Irish subsidiary. Because one thing Apple can do, right, is they can say, "Okay, Apple of Ireland owns some special patent and then Apple United States needs to pay Apple Ireland to use that intellectual property. So now our sale in Chicago was like super unprofitable because we had this huge expense out to Ireland. So now the profits are all in Ireland and then you come back around, you're like, oh, we have all this cash offshore, you know, you have to give us a special break. And under a border adjustment system, that doesn't work, right? You're taxed based on where the sale actually occurred. So that's like the point I would say of like consensus on this. The interesting thing about the way Republicans have written this is that it isn't a value added tax because in a value added tax, you cannot deduct the cost of the wages that you pay to your employees. Whereas under uh, – Destination-based cash flow tax, you can. So I think that the clearest way to think about the impact of this is to just say that they have eliminated the corporate income tax, and they've created a new consumption tax on American consumers, and then they've added a big wage subsidy to American workers. right? So if you are a person who has a job in the United States you are going to pay more. Can, can I just add yeah. one
2: thing? One reason you can do that is that, and Sean Spicer said this, is that this would happen in the context of overall tax reform. Yes. So the expectation is this would happen amidst the destruction of the worldwide tax system. Yes, like yes, that's what yes. Republicans have always wanted to do. And this is a replacement for that. Right. So, so Matt isn't just like making a, a weird debating yeah, point yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. It's, you it's a, you it, wouldn't have both of these happening at the same time.
0: Right. It's, it's, a, it's a big tax change. So if you're an American worker... You know, you buy stuff and you earn a a living. You are basically going to be paying higher prices implicitly through the consumption tax, but getting higher wages implicitly through the wage subsidy. So you should come out about even. The people who will be paying this tax are people who buy things in America, but do not have labor income in America. So that is a mishmash of like very poor people. You know, jobless people of various kinds and critically, this is why both I think it is a good idea and why once people understand it, it's going to be dead. If you are a senior citizen with non-social security income because you're relatively affluent and have been putting money away in the stock market, this tax is falling on you because you're buying things and you're not working. So I think that's a pretty good idea, right? It's actually a, it's actually a pretty progressive source of revenue. It's like a tax on old
2: Well, you just told people that it it hurts the jobless and old so t- why is it progressive? But but
0: I mean it, it it doesn't hurt all old people. It only hurts old people to the extent that they have stock portfolios. Right. Uh, Because Social Security benefits will adjust to to keep up with this. And to an extent, like uh, social assistance programs should also adjust. Right. So the people who are really going to lose out. But this is a super Republican constituency. Right. It's like if you like had a good job for 45 years and like made a lot of money and owned a lot of stock. And now you're retired and you're drawing down your 401k account and like complaining about Obama's socialism. Like you're screwed under this tax plan um, and it's – I don't think it's going to fly. Like if you I, – I think, I, I think you can see from Sean Spicer's comments on the plane. I think you can see from House Republicans coming out of this trip. I think you can see from uh, Donald Trump's stray remarks about this to the Wall Street Journal that support for this plan is driven almost entirely by genuine lack of understanding of what it does. Okay.
2: I think you have dodged my question.
1: Yeah, I was just going to ask the currency question. Yeah, you've just oh. given
2: this long filibuster <laughs> about how you should think of it, like a VAD, but it doesn't have wages. But what what I could pick up in the literature on this is that the hinge question of like, do you think it's a good idea or do you think it's a bad idea is do you think currency will adjust okay. effectively?
0: I, I actually don't think that much hinges on it because I see people on both sides of this. Um, but so here's the idea, right? If you say you did anything, to just like subsidize exporters. You just said, OK, for every foreign sale you get, you know, you, you get a penny. Um, so that should boost American exports. So that's great. Um, but boosting American exports means foreigners are going to need dollars to buy the exports. So that's going to drive up the price of the dollar and that's going to undo the price effect of the subsidy, so which it should all even out. Um, now, if you ask like serious international trade economists, like like Paul Krugman, about like literally anything that anyone could propose doing in terms of trade, they will always tell you it doesn't matter; it's going to cancel out in exchange rate effects. Um, d- that is what the economic models say about everything. In my experience, nobody believes that. I, I have never. <laughs> Whenever there's a political debate that has like a change in apparent incidence, right? We Remember when the Export-Import Bank was being discussed? Mm-hmm. Nobody's position on that was, eh, it's all going to cancel <laughs> out in exchange rate effects, right? I think it is a little odd that people have like come out of the woodwork with this exchange rate neutrality argument – just in regard to this tax thing. It's either true of like Trump's 35% border tax, the Export-Import Bank, like all policy changes ever, or it's not true at all because currency markets are in fact actively managed by government.
2: But the degree to which it is true is important. Um, There's a piece over at Vox uh, EU, not our Vox, but Economist Vox, which is a good site. In this piece, they make the assumption that Basically, the exchange rate only does a halfway adjustment, that exchange rates have some friction in them. And so, you know, it does adjust to this, but it's not all the way. I mean, come on, who are we kidding? The world isn't perfect. And that when you do that, the tax becomes pretty regressive.
0: Yes. Yes, right. I mean, if you are really imposing a huge increase in the final purchase cost of imported goods, then the impacts are huge. So it's – some people say – if this does change trade, that makes it bad, right? So, like, part of its appeal to Paul Ryan, Orthodox Republicans, is that this like doesn't constitute trade protectionism. Um, part of its appeal to Donald Trump or Sean Spicer is that it is trade protectionism. Uh, liberals. I think we'll be confused by this because like if you ask like labor unions or like economic policy institute, those kind of people, is trade protectionism good? They'll say yes. If you ask them are regressive taxes good, they'll say no. But trade protectionism is a regressive tax. So I don't know where Larry Michelle will come down on this. Um, I think a lot of people have some confused thoughts about that. Tyler Cohen wrote a post about this, which I thought was good, which was that The whole thing seems a little improperly motivated, right? We're talking about a really big change in tax policy that is being undertaken for unclear reasons. It seems like the people behind this have literally opposite opinions about what its impact will be and that various people are trying to trick each other. And it just- Do you want to
2: just unpack that for a second?
0: Yeah, so that it's like, the Trump administration wants a new era of trade protectionism. Many congressional Republicans don't want that, but do want a corporate income tax. Donald Trump is clearly comfortable with a corporate income tax, but like his real passion is sticking it to Mexico. So they've cooked up something that looks to some people like a corporate income tax cut and looks to other people like sticking it to Mexico, and they're going to try to compromise on that basis. Um, With Then you have these like AEI – Alan Vr did AEI, which is very against this. He has like this whole series of like apocalyptic blog posts about how like we're going to – They he is assuming that there's full currency adjustment, right? So in his view, full currency adjustment like would be terrible. We're going to have a devastating impact on developing countries that have dollar-denominated debts, that international drug traffickers who have huge suitcases full of $100 bills are going to like reap enormous benefits, that American – businessmen with diversified portfolios. But but the most interesting
2: one of these, because it is very funny series, but the one that I think is actually persuasive is that if you do believe in the exchange rate adjustment, that what a stronger, a much stronger dollar compared to the Mexican peso would be an incentive to immigrate illegally here. And so Donald Trump will have put in place an economic incentive for more unauthorized immigration. Now, maybe the wall will stop all of it. Who knows? But- but that it all is a seems super play.
1: unclear, right? Because that, like, has the assumption that it adjusts fully, which but seems... But if,
2: if, if you don't make the assumption to adjust fully, then the policy may not make sense.
1: Right. Right. I mean,
0: if the, <laughs> the exchange <experience> rates <laughs> don't adjust, it's, like, a devastating uh, tax on right. low-income Americans. But it seems like
1: that's, like, a big question mark, right? Like, I don't... Like, you saying it, like, makes sense in theory, but... I... Like, how do you game that out? Like, let's say, I don't know, like, you're... Trying to estimate this, like if you look at international examples, or like, "How do you?" Because that seems like a really important question that's very difficult to measure. Right? I mean, it, I have a thought on it this because I ought think to there's an easy, mechanically.
2: I think there's an easy solve to this, and you get here into the problem. Let's say this tax was being proposed by a political party that thought, as like a important conceptual matter, poor people should not pay higher taxes, and that to the extent that new taxes right. hurt anybody, it should hurt the rich. It, it's mechanically extremely easy to put in place a tax like this, say, OK, we're doing this because it makes it much harder to evade the corporate code. It's more efficient. You know, There, there are reasons you want to do this. Um, but as we see what happens, uh, to the extent that there is a negative impact, we're going to dial up various refundable tax credits, the child tax credit, um, the EITC. You know, There are a bunch of them out there. And we will make people distributionally whole. I think the problem is that it's not the Republican Party's view. And so if the exchange rate thing doesn't happen and what this ends up being is a shift in taxable burden from like corporations and rich people to poor people, they're just going to let it be. I've come to think
0: that like one of the big fallacies in Washington policymaking is the idea that it's good to like kill two birds with one stone. Um, I think it's actually really hard to throw a rock that hits two different birds in the air, unless it's just like a giant boulder that crushes everybody, and that it. <laughs> That's a pretty good analogy.
2: I think we need a it, video. It makes
0: more sense <laughs> to try to match up problems to solutions on like a one-to-one basis. Trying to solve Republican desire for the corporate income tax rate to be lower, liberal desire to crackdown on corporate income tax evasion and Donald Trump's desire to make Mexico pay for the wall all in a single tax reform we, they've we, what you've created is like a policy boulder right Where like it might do all of those things or it might do anything like no nobody <laughs> knows it's like it's it's too big of a change and it's too you You need to be able to say, like, what were we trying to do here? And then everybody can look at it and they can be like, I don't think that goal is important. So I'm going to hop off this bus. Um, Or, you know, I I really do. It's like the beauty of Democrats just wanting to, like, raise the tax rate on rich people is that, like, people can look at that and be like, no, I think that's a bad idea. Or like, yeah, let's let's stick it to them. Conversely, if Republicans just wanted to propose – a cut in the corporate income tax rate, right? The statutory rate is 35 now. They can say, let's just cut it to 30, and the deficit will go up. And you look at it, and you know, I don't know. I mean, is, would that would that be such a bad consequence? Like, I don't know. If they said, OK, we want to get it all the way down to 20, um, well, the deficit would go up a lot then. You know, I might get off that bus. If they could propose closing some loopholes, it would be fine. But this is like, it, it's really big, It's it's really weird. It seems like a workaround to the idea that like Donald Trump has a tariff idea that is unsound, but they need to – this is the point about a lot of policy, but like if the Republican in Congress view is that Donald Trump's view of trade policy is wrong, they need to say that to him, not try to trick the president into signing a tax bill that he believes will implement his trade policy but that they believe secretly won't. That is a really bad way to run the government. Here's a good white paper. It's a classic, a 2014 classic that has no renewed relevance to to today. Uh, It's brought to us by Nico Voigtlander and Hans-Joachim Voth. One's from UCLA, one's from University of Zurich. Uh, They both certainly sound like Germans. Um, And it has one of the great all-time NBER titles, Highway to Hitler. Um, So this is a paper about the Autobahn construction program of uh, 1933-34, and they take advantage of the fact that the the Nazi regime, after seizing power and implementing a dictatorship, uh, it nonetheless kept holding elections for a couple of years. Um, so they held a, a parliamentary election in 1933, in which they were getting like 70 to 90 percent of the vote everywhere. And then they held a referendum in 1934, which was just like, should Hitler have more power? Um,
2: Are they? I have a quick question on this. Are these? I do not know this history. Yeah, I'm just complete yeah. ignorance here. Because this is crucial to what's being studied, are these referendums considered fair?
0: No, 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 no. So this is important. The reason it works is that they were both considered unfair. Oh, they're equally unfair. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like show referendums, right? We're like, you know, the, the Nazis got like implausibly high numbers, but not 100%, right? And so... Support for the Nazis grows between sham referendums. Uh, they specifically look at who voted no in these things, right? Because to vote, to show up at the polls when you were free to not vote, and to then vote no when you knew they were going to win anyway,
2: it is, a, is, a, you is a
0: right. Is a it's a costly signal of opposition to the regime. So fewer people wanted to pay this cost uh, over time. And you might think, well, that makes sense, right? The regime has just consolidated itself, so opposition becomes demoralized. But they show that there is geographical variation in the extent to which opposition falls. Uh, And then they look at where Autobahn construction was happening, and they show that there's a strong correlation between Autobahn building and... A fall in opposition in that local area, um, and they reached the conclusion that therefore uh, the, the the highway construction was a uh, highly effective. What what is their exact phrase? Um, it's pungent. Our results suggest that road building was highly effective, reducing opposition to the nascent Nazi regime. Um, so they are saying that separate from the macroeconomic impact of like. Fiscal stimulus that the specific local impact of they did a big building project in your town was likely to to demobilize political opposition.
1: And did they get it? Like, who is demobilized? Like, how? Like, what's the extent? We're ta- like, how effective are we talking? This is like, like, how much do they think the autobahn is responsible for? Well,
0: that that's where it's what's a little dropping? hard to tell because okay. these are these are like unfair type elections. So I would say that the impact is like relatively small. You're talking about a third of a standard deviation, I I think it says down. So we'd say the the needle does not move an enormous amount. Their argument is that like registered opposition at these election results was very low already, so that this is a, a significant finding. I think it would be better if you had an instrument that like actually detected people's opinions of the regime, which you don't have. This is a kind of clever, you know, exploit around that. But I don't think that we have, like, as a world, a great deal of, like, understanding of like what the meaning of plebiscites undertaken under these circumstances are. Like, if we hear that the dictatorship of Turkmenistan or something gets 99 percent, but in Uzbekistan it's only 97 percent, like, I, I don't know that it's obvious what the meaning of that is? So, uh,
2: I think a few things can be said here. One is that this is a paper that overall validates or I would say validates preexisting intuitions that spending a lot of money on infrastructure is a popular thing for regimes to do. I think the interesting thing about it being Nazis is it is a popular thing. It's a potentially a normalizing thing for abnormal regimes to do, right? Like these guys are scary and then they come in like, well, we're just building some roads, you know, like getting jobs. You know, maybe it's not as bad as you think. And, you know, to take this maybe a little bit away from the very, very horrific regime we're, we're specifically talking about here, I think we've seen a lot of regimes do things like this, right? It is, it is a very common thing for and was, I think, a very common thing throughout much of practically American history to build, make, do big road projects as, a, as an effort to, to create political support. I think a place where this school of political research is interesting is in the choice that specifically Democrats are going to face in the coming year or so, which is Donald Trump does want to do an infrastructure bill. There are disagreements. We've talked about this on the show before about what kind of infrastructure bill. But let's just say hypothetically he wants to do a big infrastructure bill and it's one that in theory Democrats could get on board with. So one version of this is to say that Democrats, because they think the bill is good, should support it. Another version of this is to say that Democrats who keep saying Donald Trump is very bad and very dangerous and that it's important that people recognize that his regime is a scary thing and the conflict of interest and the corruption and all of this is something that should be outside the bounds of normal American politics, that they do not hand him the gift of a popular infrastructure program that will persuade people that, yeah, Donald Trump, he might be a little wacky on Twitter But ultimately, he's trying to do the right thing and and build in a bunch of roads. I think this is actually one of the very interesting strategic questions that faced Mitch McConnell um, in in the Obama years where he clearly made a decision, particularly on large-scale bills, that the specifics of the bills were less important than getting somebody he considered to be dangerous in office out of office. And right now, Democrats are facing a very similar decision. And it speaks to the Supreme Court thing too as to – Whether or not they want to vote on things specifically and episodically, like is this a good bill? Is this a good nominee? Or is what they're trying to do is signal a kind of emergency state to the American people? Everything this guy does is bad and you should not like him and we're just going to try to make him unpopular as possible.
1: I mean I think everything they've learned from the past few years like points in that direction. Let me make
2: the counter argument. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't a good direction for Republicans, right? Like think about like what happened then. They did they, – they had very, very big congressional wins but they did not beat Obama, right? Obama got a ton done. He They did not beat him in 2012. He got reelected. He ended very, very popular and they so torched their own part. I mean part of the suicide mission here was making them look very bad and scaring the shit out of their constituency. They ended up handing their party over to Donald Trump to an outsider candidate who – was a weaker candidate than I think other candidates they could have run in 2016. I think that he obviously won the Electoral College, but I think a Marco Rubio or a John Kasich or um, a number of other people would have had a much better chance of winning the popular vote and and just like having a real majority. And also, if the Republican Party wasn't such a hated institution that had turned its own people into such complete, fearful, like scared – and um, disempowered uh, – to such a disempowered force, maybe they would not have felt they needed to, like, have this, like, breaking case of emergency candidate.
1: I, I mean, like, all fair. But at the end of the day, like, they control the entire government right now, which I think is, like, a pretty good outcome for them. And I think of, like, the counterfactual where they, they did compromise and, like, selectively, like, picked the things they like, the places, like, you know, when Obama tried to compromise, they got on board. They, I don't know how that, like, puts them in – The scenario of power that they are in now, where they would be able to run as effectively against Democrats as, and like I do get, like they did not win the popular vote, but you know, they did win the Electoral College vote. They were able to polarize a lot of issues. You know, they were able to keep like Obamacare at like relatively low approval ratings in a way like I did not expect. So I don't know. I feel like if I'm the Democrats, like what I learned from this from being in the minority is like, just really do a lot of obstruction. That's what I, like, probably learned from this white paper, too. I guess one question I have about the white paper, though, is, like, what actually were the costs of voting no? Like, I feel like how I interpret it hinges a lot on that and, like, how costly was it? And my, my knowledge of history is not strong enough to know, like, what happened to the no voters here, but it's more of, like, a academic, question like about this particular paper but like is the instrument they're using like how much should i trust that and actually measuring what they say it's measuring yeah i
0: i don't know i mean it wasn't like you vote no and right. then they ship you off to the camps i mean i think it was more just like there was a sense of intimidation and and monitoring you know as there often is in, in dictatorial regimes i agree i mean a A definite weakness of this paper is that I don't think that they – you know, they're economists. I don't think that they like really super rigorously account for the question of – it could be that places where they built roads, there was just more intensive like Nazi party on the ground activity and people felt more intimidated rather than people actually felt demobilized. That that seems to be like the alternate interpretation of this and you would need to like really understand in like detailed way what the party activity was. I doubt that that I have about this, right? Like this paper it's in some way is interesting because it's a funny title and because it's about Hitler. Um, but it's fairly uncontroversial to say that the uh, WPA uh, was right. a winner for Roosevelt in, in the 30s. And I think a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats alike, thought hoped slash feared that the stimulus bill would be like WPA redux and there was like a Time Magazine cover where like Obama was riding in the open limo with FDR's cigarette holder and that didn't work out. I mean not just in the sense that like Obama's popularity went down because the economy was in trouble but the thing that people thought would happen where FDR slash Hitler is – running around the country at groundbreakings and all these roads are being built and they're like, aha, it's our Obama road. That just didn't happen. And it didn't happen to the extent that like lots of people would say like instead of this stupid stimulus, Obama should have done a big infrastructure bill. And then Mike Grunwald would be like furiously tweeting. There was $400 billion (laughs) of infrastructure. But the big difference is that in the 30s, there wasn't a highway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So you could build a highway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, A, really fast because it was like empty space. And B, it was like a really obvious place to have a highway. People know there's two cities in Pennsylvania. They're not that far apart. If you build a highway, you can drive there. But we've already built all those roads, right? It's not that we have already built like every conceivable infrastructure project in America. But like if you want to drive from Dallas to Houston, there's a road there. Um, if you want to drive from DC to Baltimore, there's a road there. So you're talking about widening existing highways, which involves closing parts of them. You have to do it slowly or you're talking about marginal road projects like you're adding a new highway interchange in the exurbs of Milwaukee Um, or you're talking about sort of contentious mass transit programs like you're going to shut down an existing city street and install streetcar tracks on it. And it's just much less clear to me that that kind of thing It delivers the kind of political wins that we're talking about. Now, if you're talking about macroeconomic impacts, right? Like if just the sheer money going through reduces the unemployment rate, like that's obviously good for you. Um, Or if when the project is done, everyone's life is way better, like that's obviously good for you. But like is the short-term impact of under modern-day conditions – putting this kind of thing forward, does it really work? I'm, I'm like a little bit skeptical. And like maybe the thing that like the next great political entrepreneur has to do is not like go back to the well and be like, let's build highways again. But is like what in the 21st century can play that role of like we didn't have this thing and now we do?
2: I think also there's a tension there between, as I understand it, The Obama administration's desire to get money out fast, which meant a lot of repairs, a lot of what they called at that time shovel-ready projects. I think almost by definition, a shovel-ready project is not going to be a big-ticket, highlight, you can, like, look at it and see it project that – Tendency. I mean, there were a couple of things that they funded in that, like California's high speed rail. In theory, could have been that kind of project. It has been a disaster for a bunch of other reasons. But even
0: if it hadn't been a disaster, right?
2: It's not like it would have been done, now. right? But I, I think that's right. totally right. And so that's part of it too. It also takes time to do these things. So that was a very big project. Um, I think that's somewhere where Donald Trump will have very good instincts. What Donald Trump likes to do is create things big enough that he can put his name on them. (laughs) Right. Right. He does not care if places need another casino or if, you know, Scotland desperately needed a golf course. What he wants is things that people look at and the name Trump is on them and they look cool. And so I think he will be, and he's also not operating in the context of a of an emergency. So I think that they would definitely be trying to create more projects of these kinds. Now I take your point that partly within the, the bucket of things we traditionally think of as infrastructure, it is not clear there's all that much low hanging fruit of that kind. And so you know what what is that fruit now? I, I don't know right. The like answer. if Detroit didn't have an airport
0: then building an airport in Detroit would be a great high-profile infrastructure project that targets a Rust Belt state where Donald Trump wants to blah, 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 But I've been to the Detroit airport. If anything, Detroit's airport is too big, right? It's like an airport for a major American city in the suburbs of what's now become a sort of minor American city. Um, it's great for University of Michigan that Ann Arbor is near this giant Delta hub. But like, I mean, it's not that there's nothing you can do exactly. But one thing that that happens that comes up in this context all the time is people will say there's an obsession among America's elite with the international arrivals terminal at Kennedy Airport and how it's (laughs) dingy. And they'll be like, you fly from Dubai to Kennedy and you're like, oh, the airport's so new and nice and our airport's so old and shitty. That's terrible. And it is true. But like if you stop and think about it, Kennedy Airport's International Terminal is old and dingy literally because it is old. And Dubai's International Terminal is new and shiny literally because it is new. Like 30 years ago, there was a big airport in New York and there wasn't one in Dubai. But there is one in New York, right? So like why would you build a brand new airport? In New York, where there's already an airport, just so it would look newer. And even if you wanted to,
2: where would it go? But the flip is, if you fixed up the Kennedy International's terminal for a long period of time, these same would be like, this is a fucking disaster, right? <laughs> like I can't go anywhere. Right, like sh- everything's under construction. Wait, if you sh-
0: right. so if you so you could shut the airport down, but that would annoy people. You could demolish half of Queens to build a new <laughs> airport, but people wouldn't like that. You could build it in the middle of nowhere, but why would you do that? Right? It's very. I think there's a lot of like confused thinking
1: on this subject. Um, but I think, like, the one space that, like, strikes me as, like, ripe for this big project you can name is, like, some kind of, like, internet access thing. Like, like having, yeah. like, free Wi-Fi called TrumpNet everywhere. I would love it if there was, like, just free Wi-Fi everywhere yeah. I was. And you call it TrumpNet and then, like, oh, it's a thing you put his name on. The hard part is, like, you're saying, Matt, the physical space feels very taken. And I think, like, that kind of pushes towards projects that are, like, less traditional works projects. Ooh, like, I like it.
2: Let's build should, a Trump net. You want to build Trump I net? I think we should call it Great Net.
1: Well, Donald Trump, if you're, li- Trump. <laughs> if you're no, listening. the password is Trump. No, it's called podcast, TrumpNet and the
2: password is great again. Greatnet. Great Net.
1: <laughs> well, we'll leave Trump to the policymaking details on it. But I think that's our, that's my like infrastructure proposal for him. He should I hire like you.
2: Agreed. All right. I'd
1: like to stay and work at Fox. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Even better. We'll, well, we'll move to Trump net in the office. All right. I think that's an episode of the weeds. What do you all think? Sounds great. All right. Trump dead forever. This has been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to my wonderful colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, to our wonderful producer, Efim Shapiro, to you, our wonderful listeners. You're all terrific. We will be back, as always, next week.